0: A Philistine's Guide to Literature, an unrefined analysis of superior written works, with your host, Zach Hall. Alrighty, and welcome, welcome, welcome to A Philistine's Guide to Literature, episode 3 with Infinite Jest. I am your host, Zach Hall, and, uh, oh gosh, I'd be, uh, I'd I'd be lying to you if I said that, uh, all day today I haven't been, uh, putting this off because I have just no idea what I'm going to say about this book so far. Last time when we, uh... When we when we were talking, uh, we had left it off at the uh, Kate Grompet chapter on page seventy five. So we're going to pick up from where we left off, ending on page one hundred and fifty one. So over the past week, done a lot of reading, and I gotta say that I've been getting more and more into this book and almost getting to the point where I'm like obsessing over it where when I'm not reading it I'm thinking about it or I want to be reading it or something like that which is a good sign because frankly I I don't think I was going to get to that I, I didn't think I was going to get to that point you know it's just uh it's, it's one of those things where I'm I'm being drawn into it and I don't know if it's the uh, pursuit of putting on a good show for all of you all listening or that this book is actually uh you know grab me deep down inside and 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 made me a part of its world it's brought me in and, and gave me a big hug and now it won't let go so rewinding a little bit let's talk about kate Grompet. i really love that chapter i thought it was great so uh kate Grompet or or gromit I, I think i think it's Grompet with a p you know certainly looking at uh, some of the ties between her and that uh ken already guy so she looks like she's a um a, a young lady who has some some serious addiction problems and uh that, that kind of seems to be the base of, of her mental issues, which is when we meet her, she's in a mental institution talking to a, a, a young doctor. And the, the doctor is a pretty good dude, it seems like. He he really wants to relate to her, and it seems like he's doing all the right things. He's, he's someone that, that Kate can really trust. And uh, in reading it, I kind of, like, trusted him. Like, I was, I was on his side, and I think that I kind of got the feeling that he really did want to help Kate in like get to the bottom of what's wrong with her. So she uh she divulges that she has this obsession with marijuana. Now, this isn't the first time that we hear about this. So that's why I would think I was um you know kind of so interested that it that it went that way because we've we keep hearing about these people who have these addiction problems, whether it be this guy ken Aretti, who we haven't heard anything about in a couple chapters now they kind of just left him hanging in the beginning. Um they've had him referenced a bunch of times about that guy in Alston or whatever, the guy who sells drugs. But Kate is the first one who says, like, look, I got an issue, and it's because of this this marijuana thing. Also a tie-in to, to Hal there, because Hal has his own problems with marijuana. His, I don't know if they are considered a problem, but it is like his uh, his sweet escape from the, uh, the uh, Enfield Tennis Academy world. So I think that this chapter is particularly important. And the first thing that it made me realize is that it, it gave me some hope, I think, that the book was starting to come together a little bit, like there may be a central theme. And I think that that paired with the Canadian one that we're going to see in much greater depth throughout this week's reading, where we get into the the Marthe guy, whoever you'd say it, and the Steeples guy, the uh, the transvestite or whatever, the, the, the trans... The guy who's dressing like a woman, the the spies, the one from Canada in the wheelchair, and the one from America, but that we see as a very central theme of the book, something that everything kind of keeps coming back to. But certainly this this idea of marijuana and stuff like that. But I really, I really did like that chapter. I thought it was, um, I thought it was very well written, and I I really did empathize with Kate. I think, um, but I think I was really stricken by the doctor and kind of just, you know, he was a good dude. And I don't think that he had to be because I think that a lot of times that you want to side with the person in Kate's situation because, you know, like, she's the vulnerable one. She's the one who's in the mental institution. She's the one who is kind of like, you know, has these problems, but it's kind of her against the world. And I think you want to be on her side. And the doctor is maybe like the man or whatever. But this doctor, he was a good dude. And I I really liked him. So I'm really looking forward to seeing more of that and kind of uh, his place in the story. So... I guess I, I just mentioned how much I really like that chapter, and I guess that that is kind of the theme of this entire episode, because this, uh, this block of reading that I did, like I said, it's the book has really started to draw me in, and I just, I, there was so much in it that I really enjoyed. The second part being Mario and this guy, Shtit, the, uh, the head tennis coach at Enfield Tennis Academy, I... I love this chapter too, and I thought that it was it was so difficult, especially when it starts talking about like all like the math and stuff like that. When it's talking about shtit, James and Candenza, the the father himself, if you will, when when they started talking about the math, I got so like thrown off with what they were talking about because I am not a math guy at all. But I think that what it boiled down to, in my my opinion, with that, with with them talking about math, was that. Tennis is just a game, and and the math thing. The conversation got going It was because it was a, uh, a commonality that this guy Stitt, and uh, James and Candenza, the founder of the Enfield Tennis Academy, had in common. So the reason why they they got along so well was their opinion on tennis. So uh, Stitt is a is a German fella. He seems to be a uh, like a. a a Nazi in a past life or something like that. And he apparently used to be very authoritative. You know, he used to really demand a lot of people. And now in his old age, I think he's kind of laxed off a little bit, but he still does a lot of silly things. They mentioned, I don't know if they were, they were joking in the book, but that he still wears like a uniform with like epaulets, which are like the shoulder boards and stuff. So... You know that's just a pretty funny picture of the tennis coach as kind of like this dictator of the tennis academy that people really fear. But it seems like he's a good dude, especially in the way that he uh, he interacts with Mario, which I certainly want to get into in a second because I think Mario is a really interesting character. Um, but back to the math thing, what I kind of saw it as was was the thing that James and Candenza and Shtit related on was that tennis is just a game. And they were talking about all these infinities and stuff like that. And it was getting into a part of math that I just... Like I said, I had no idea what was going on. But to me, how I was interpreting it was that tennis is a game in that there are an infinite number of moves that any person can make. And... Because of that, it makes tennis a game of infinites because, like... It's so unpredictable what a person may do. Now, they talk about statistics and stuff like that. So I think that statistically, like what is a good move in tennis and what a person should be doing can all be governed by most people in a certain situation will react a certain way. But I think what James and Candenza and Stitt liked about tennis was that in reality, anything could happen. And what I mean by that is that like within a tennis game, I could literally do anything. So I think that they were fascinated by that. And they described tennis as being mathematically uncontrollable, but humanly contained. And I think that that is the best way to describe what they were trying to say because in terms of math and possibilities, anything can happen, but humans act a certain way. So they're probably going to do what humans do. So... I don't really I don't really know why that was important like like this is another one of those things where uh Wallace might have just put it in there because he was trying to be smart or if this is maybe one of those big philosophical messages that we're you know meant to take away from the book that you know anything can happen just because something should happen like a human should act a certain way there's always room for something else to happen so I think that's just something that, from that chapter, I'm going to take away um, as something to kind of keep in the back of my mind when I'm reading. I also think that it's really important to the story, because think about the way that Shtit was was talking to Mario and interacting with Mario. I think that it was it was definitely a place where Wallace had outlined a spot and been like, hey, this guy Shtit, pretty mean dude, is taking time to talk to poor old Mario. Listen up, because he's imparting wisdom on him, so maybe... That was Wallace's way of imparting wisdom on us. I don't know. Like I said, something that I'm going to square away in the back of my mind. Moving on, we get into this section about the the the, the Canadian conspiracy. And it, it really it really starts to bring that to light. And I think so far, this has been the most central plot line, short of like Howe and Oren and, and Enfield Tennis Academy, stuff like that. But as far as actually things happening in the book, this idea of Canada doing something bad and like maybe... Quebec's, and I, I guess I really shouldn't say Canada anymore because now I think that we're really starting to get an idea of of who the actors are. And it seems like it's not Canada, but it's Quebec, and it looks like Quebec has, in this, this dystopian future, annexed itself from Canada and is more aligning itself with like the United States or this 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 pseudo government that the United States holds. And they keep referencing ONAN, O-N-A-N, and what that is is the Organization of North American Nations, which I kind of see as like a, you know, maybe like a European Union, nato e type thing that I guess could only be Canada, USA, and Mexico. Mexico hasn't been mentioned at all, but it looks like maybe this is the big governing body of it and things are getting a a little bit more centralized in terms of government. I I don't know, and I'm kind of getting going beyond my my scope there talking about that. But from what it seems to me, especially, there definitely seems to be some political uh, tension between Canada and Quebec and Quebec and the United States or or the United States and Canada. I don't know. But we do meet this character, Marthe and, and Steeple, and they're important because they're the first tactical operators that we see that are actually openly talking about this conflict with Canada, Quebec, and the United States. We've we've heard it referenced a couple times before. It looks like Hal and Oren's mom, the moms, Avril and Candenza, it looks like she has some kind of association with it. it. It turns out she is from Canada originally, and her brother Charles Tavis, CT. So they got something going on, and... We've also kind of heard it referenced on the outskirts with the uh, medical attache, who was the Saudi prince's personal, one of his personal physicians. But now we're kind of getting into the level where we're talking about what's going down. So the scene is kind of set in this Arizona desert. So another reference to Arizona. I, again, I think it's a big deal. Something, stuff keeps happening in Arizona for a reason. And, you know, Oren's there. That's where James Incandins is from. Arizona is certainly on my, the top of my weird places list in, uh, in Infinite Jest. And they're talking about, or let me back up because I didn't mention this guy Tiny Yule. Tiny Yule, that was the strangest chapter so far because it just like talks about this guy who's like a very small guy. That's why his name Tiny isn't isn't ironic or anything like that. And he's a very small guy who's also going to a mental institution. And I don't know if it's the same one that Kate Grompet is going to or the same one that is referenced as that um, in Boston as that house. Um, it, it was it was, it was was created, you get to it at like page like 148 or something like that, um, right at the end of the 140s and it's about the guy who was a former AA guy and he wanted to eat rocks and um, so I don't know if he's going there, I, I can't quite recall but that's, that's the place where I don't know what the point of Tiny Yule what his place is yet but that's where it all kind of starts to get, come together because it talks about the burglary with M. Duplass, that's the guy who died in the chair, and the Arab man, so Everything's kind of coming together. But we meet these characters, Martha and Steeple, and they're up in the mountains in Arizona talking about crazy stuff. Martha's in a wheelchair. Steeple's in a dress. We know that there's definitely some contention between the two. They have some kind of a history, and whether it be their work that they've done or the work against each other, I'm not really sure yet, and I don't really even know what they're talking about. They're kind of talking around this, this attache's problem where it looks like they've watched this, uh, this cartridge in their, their teleputer tape player viewer thing. And it seems to be killing them all or putting them in some kind of a catatonic state or something like that. I don't know. I don't know if this, this is some kind of uh, weaponized form of entertainment, entertainment, as we know, we talked about it last time is, like, kind of, like, the central theme in the world, and it's kind of what everybody lives for in one way or another. So it, it makes sense. I mean, if they were going to weaponize entertainment and they made some kind of a, uh, a a tape that was like The Ring, that's what I keep thinking about, you know, that movie The Ring where people watch it and they're dead in seven days. If they make something like that and people are, you know, addicted to this, this entertainment and they have to get their nightly fix, that might be a good way to, uh, you know, take out certain people. So they're kind of talking about that, but something that I really want to talk about the kind of, um, it it was the first, first experience I've had in this book for, for something that I knew was coming was, uh, was footnote three zero four. That was the, uh, the one that I think it was footnote 45 had you go down to a subnote within a subnote and it was like 10 pages long. And it was talking about the, um, the game where the kids in Canada basically play chicken with a train. And they try to jump out of its way, and it causes them to lose their legs. Because a lot of these kids in Canada lost their legs this way, they were, you know, they're bound to a wheelchair for the rest of their life. And then this wheelchair assassin guild thing gets created, and I don't really know the point of it. Maybe it's just like a funny thing. But it looks like these are pretty serious guys. I mean, it seems like they're uh, they're very violent, and they're political, and they certainly have an objective... At this time, it's kind of unknown what it is for me. I don't know if they're actively killing people, if they're working for Quebec in, in hopes to annex itself from Canada or to do harm to the United States. I don't know yet. Um, and then we have this guy, Steeple, who's an American spy, and he works for, like, this, like, it's, like, the unit of or unspecified works or something like that. And I kind of... See him as like a black ops guy. Like we don't really know what he does. He doesn't really talk about it. Hence unspecified. But he's some kind of a field operative where his bosses put him in a dress and he goes out and he's like deep undercover in a dress. And uh, he seems to have done this before. The uh, Marthe made reference of him uh, being uh, dressed as a black guy one time, and now he's a he's a woman in a dress. And he he really seems to take his characters to heart. He does a lot of things that are very feminine, um, which I think is pretty funny him and Martha's ex- exchange. But really, that, that's, that's been really kind of uh, confusing for me about where it's all going. I think I can see kind of the bigger pictures and I can start to draw some of the bigger connections. But actually getting into the specifics of what they're talking about, I'm still a little fuzzy. So this week, everything's all kind of coming together. But I don't think we're quite there yet where we're having these aha moments. I think now we're starting to, to get a better picture painted of our world where it's like, okay, this is happening here, this is happening here, this is happening here, and now we're having these go-betweens, these, these characters who know each other and are connecting with each other, but we haven't had some kind of synthesis where it's all like, okay, this is where it makes sense. So, looking forward to that. I really wanted to touch on the uh, the locker room scene as well, because there was a bunch, this week, there was a bunch of scenes where Hal kind of comes out of his shell and, and not, is not like he came out of his shell, like he's he's shy throughout the entire book and now he finally is coming out, but he came out of his shell to us, the reader, in that we're kind of getting a glimpse of his interactions with his, uh, his cohort at the Enfield Tennis Academy. And I must say that this entire part is really relatable. Um, you know, I don't know if it's just me being like a, you know, a 20-something-year-old dude, like hanging out with my buddies. I know what it's like, you know. But uh, I just... I think it's it's so I don't know I, I I didn't think when I think I started when I started this book I didn't think that there was going to be anything in here that I could really relate to I don't play tennis you know I'm not a I'm not a vocabulary genius whatever but Wallace has really surprised me in these chapters where he's kind of brought the uh, the the Enfield Tennis Academy students they he made them very real and I know that that was something that I talked about a few episodes ago about how I was really looking forward to. Wallace getting into these characters, but the way that he was able to do it with these uh, these these younger guys, these students, and them just kind of, you know, broing out and being buddies, he really did something beautiful there, and I, I really uh, have enjoyed, you know, kind of meeting all of the uh, the characters and stuff like that, but let's talk about how for a second we do kind of get a glimpse into his personality, and it looks like he's very outspoken with his friends. He is kind of a know-it-all, kind of an egghead. However, it looks like he's very soft-spoken. If you look at some of the uh, the words it like it's it's not like how exclaimed or how screamed or how did it's like how softly said or how whispered or so it seems like while he knows his stuff it looks like he's kind of passive in his his communications with with his buddies it looks like some of his buddies in the locker room are pretty loud and pretty crass or whatever but how i think is maybe on like a higher level than them but but it seems like people like him you know and he's he seems like a pretty good good natured dude he uh he he has some nicknames, they call him the Halinator, the Halster, and all this stuff. So I'm I'm glad to see that Hal isn't among his colleagues he isn't like some some weirdo because I think that uh, from the first chapter and stuff like that and kind of him going crazy in the admissions office at um at University of Arizona, I was about to say University of Phoenix. And I I think that there was there was plenty of room for him to be a, a nut and so far he's looking like he's he's turned out to be an alright dude. Would, uh, I really love the chapter about um, with Mario, where he was uh, he was with that that Millicent girl, and they call it the USS Millicent, whatever it is, because she's so big, like a, like a battleship, like USS. And uh, I really love that chapter because I think it was it was so also very relatable. I think for you know like a young guy or their first sexual exploits, and uh, and he was so naive, like he had no idea what was going on, and she was kind of just like taking advantage of him. But Mario is an interesting character to me because I don't really have a good grasp on what his deal is. So I think that there's something wrong with him. Clearly, it looks like he, he you know, may have some physical deformities and maybe some, some mental deformities because it, it's like he's wearing, like, a back brace and, like, all this stuff. So something I think I would like to get a little bit more clarity on and then kind of his role. What is Mario there for? Not, not like, what is he there for? Like, why why is he here? But... He's an interesting foil to Hal and Oren, who are very, very smart. Later in this week's reading, Oren gave Hal that really weird phone call. So like I don't I don't know if like Oren's going crazy too um, since he's moved to Arizona. but some something to, some something to look forward to, I think with with Oren and kind of where that goes in their relationship because it looks like they they may be coming together or communicating more because Hal had mentioned they hadn't talked in months prior to these these recent phone calls that he's been getting. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to see where they go together. I don't know if they're going to, like, you know, join up and try to solve mysteries buddy-buddy style, but it 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 seems to me that it's pointing in a direction where Hal and Oren are going to need to to get together, and I'm curious if Mario's kind of in the same place or if he's just a comic relief, like, oh, let's take a break from the heavy stuff and talk about Mario. I'm not sure. Interesting character. But I'd like to finish on this Wardine esque chapter that was at the end of this week's reading because I have no idea what what they were trying to say. And frankly, I thought it was very difficult to read given the length of it and the language. So I was reading it and I was getting very frustrated throughout the whole thing because it was one of those times where I was just like, okay, I just need to get through this. I need to get through this so I can get to another part. And then I'll start realizing what's going on. So while I didn't really understand all the nuances of it, I think that towards the end of it, I started to kind of pick up what was going on, and it turns out that this guy C and poor Tony and 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 our narrator, who I don't know who that is, it wasn't given a name, so assuming it was a male, but it looks like they were all, like, heroin addicts or something like that, and they go to Chinatown, they talk to this guy, Dr. Wo, or Wu, or whatever, and... They like get their they get their drugs and you know spoiler alert one of them dies and it leads our character to kind of give himself up from drugs temporarily he 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 wants to go he sees so like the the one friend C he does the drugs first the heroin first and it looks like the they they determine that the heroin has been has been laced with drano and it ends up killing the guy so poor Tony and our narrator throw the body away, and our narrator decides it, and poor Tony, they both do, but they decide they're never going to do drugs again. The narrator goes to his mother's house and and gets clean. And at the end of the chapter, after he's detoxed or whatever, in the last sentence, it's like, IB need to get clean. And after IB did so, I was finally able to stand up straight. And like those last like six words or whatever were Totally, you know, I, I was able to read them and they were clear and it wasn't this this jumbled ebonics thing or whatever. So the only thing that I was able to take away from this, and looking back at Wardine and stuff, was maybe that the characters talk like that because they're addicted to some kind of a substance that that makes them dumb or whatever. I mean, you know, not dumb, but but they're in some kind of an altered state, and that's why they're talking all silly like that. So, right this second, I'm led to believe that when Wallace is writing like that it means that the characters are under the influence of something and and I think or they're just in a bad way perhaps because not that they're necessarily high right that second but their lives are kind of in shambles and they can't really think straight because of the the drugs so I really like that chapter in that the end kind of gave that glimpse that was a uh, a nice respite from how difficult it was to read because it just was not making sense but I will go on the record saying that I still don't know where that really fits into the story except for the fact that in like the, the middle 50s or late 40s or whatever, it gets to that block of writing where it's like those really long titles. And then it's, there's like a memorandum and then a, a paper from Howe and then an article that was written by Steeple as his woman in disguise persona that actually discusses the guy, poor Tony – Uh, stealing a purse it's described as a a, you know a clearly cross-dressing man transvestite or something like that who steals a purse that has an artificial heart in it or something like that but again kind of brings it all together so um yeah at the end of the day, this was a pretty good section of reading. I think that it really got me in the mood to keep going, and I'm, uh, I'm really supercharged on this book right now, really excited for it to continue on. I know that a bunch of uh, the common consensus is get to, like, page 200 or something like that, but for me it was, like, get to page 65 or 75 or whatever, and now this book has really taken off and really drawn me in. At the end of the day, this, this section right here has kind of, like I said, started to connect some dots a little bit but still pretty unclear not exactly sure what's going to happen in the future but hey I think we're out of time here for today don't want to keep you too much longer but I do appreciate everyone listening in. once again thanks again to all my friends on Reddit and uh, those of you who have been uh, listening attentively and giving the thumbs up and uh, requesting more um, I do appreciate it you're going you're gonna to keep this thing going keep me excited so that's all I have for this week I look forward to seeing you next week enjoy Infinite Jest and happy reading thanks guys